Episode of the Brothers Trek about the original series. As always, I am Matt from Austin, and coming to us from Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Ken. Peace and long life. There we go. Well, we are at another excellent episode, a kind of a fun episode, a little bit more humor enthused episode called uh, Tomorrow is Yesterday. Uh, we got some time travel going on here, although I question much of the science that happens. <laughs> but we'll get there. It's fine. It's totally fine. We mentioned this uh, way back uh, when we were talking about the naked time, but this was originally going to be the second part of that two-part story. Or at the end of that script, uh, Kirk says, uh, uh, it doesn't matter where we're going. Uh, how about the way we came? Towards Earth. And then they were going to... Uh, Get stuck in the time loop and do the time thing. I believe it was Roddenberry who said no to that because he didn't he didn't want the show to be uh, to be uh, serialized. Serialized, yeah. Which is yeah. funny because that's how it's ended up. Yeah, exactly. And you know, so uh, look at Discovery. Yes, to bring up the uh, well, I mean, even even the way it ended up in DS Nine, it was much more serialized than the original series. So you posted a, um, a link to a podcast on the Facebook page. And one of the things that they brought up is the, the, the conflict between fans who want the show to be episodic and those who want it to be serialized. Right. And there are benefits dramatically to both kinds. And so it's interesting that the fans are still in disagreement about whether or not it should be strictly episodic, as Roddenberry ultimately decided in this case, or whether it should be serialized the way it works out in Discovery. I think I have always preferred serialized. I think that even back in the day, I realized that episodic was like, you know, because they always seem to revert back to zero. You know what I mean? No matter what happens, right. there's no like growing and learning or anything. So you're like, cool. But then, you know, like, as we have discussed many times before, you know, you get that, you get the the formulaic, uh, you know, greatest American hero. We're at, you know, the thirty minute and the you know forty five minute mark. He's gonna be in the outfit and he's gonna be fighting somebody, and then that's it. You know, it just happens the same way every week. It's you know, it's the same thing with, I don't know, all those shows of the eighties. There's no point in rehashing it, but you know, that was. But it's just hard when you're, you'd rather everyone learn you know, the, and, and move right. on and grow and become a different person so that the show can become a different thing. Otherwise, you're just repeating yourself every week. I think by the time you get to uh, DS9 and um, Voyager, I think you do have a much more the characters are learning, the characters are developed, the characters have an arc. It's yes. just that it's long and slow. The show doesn't focus on that particular arc. The show can still be episodic. In the sense that, you know, this week we're going to encounter species Delta Quadrant, you know, 12, and we'll never see them again. But things that happen yep. to the characters may, or the, the characters may refer to things that have happened in the past, 
or develop because of things that happen here. You know, there was the episode where in Next Generation where, you know, Troy had the baby that became a light, a light beam that, like, eventually left. Yes. And never mentioned it again. And, you know, it didn't change her in any way. And yep. so I think Next Generation didn't quite have that arkiness to it. It was still too episodic in terms of finding that right balance. But later on, I think they caught it. Definitely. All right, so this is uh, DC Fontana's uh, second script that she was allowed to write. You know, she was at this point only uh, Gene Roddenberry's secretary. But at the point in which uh, this script got green-lighted, uh, she basically was like, maybe I just want to do this full-time and not be your secretary anymore. Uh, to which Gene Roddenberry was cool with because he had not only realized this is another episode, much like last week's, where the writing of it to the time it was actually shot was a short amount of time. You know, again, it's just somebody who's read through all of the scripts up to this point. You know, somebody who's been a, especially, you know, with DC, she's, you know, been a part of what's been going on. So she understands the characters. She understands how Star Trek works. And boom, you know, she's able to crank out, uh, you know, within three weeks, a script that they are already ready to shoot. That's fun. So uh, just to tell you how fast this was, they started shooting this episode over Thanksgiving weekend, and it actually aired January 26th of the next year. So you're going to see, you know, that's three months, which for, uh, you know, 1960s Star Trek was, you know, no time at all. So there's been a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes drama uh, associated with the writing of this episode because uh, Robert Justman, uh, at the end of The Naked Time, wrote up a quick memo that basically laid out the idea for this show. Enterprise goes back to the 1960s. They've got to, you know, figure out their way back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but DC Fontana, to this day, swears that she never read that memo and that she, too just naturally came up with this idea. Well, I think it is a natural idea. One of the things that I, I to, to, like, again, to swim in the whole, you know, realm of Star Trek, one of the things I like about later episodes, or later um, series, is that they didn't feel the need to come back to, you know, the year that the audience right. was watching the show. And so you've got Little Green Men, where the Ferengi... And, you know, some other members of the uh, crew end up in Roswell in 1947 or whatever right. the year was. Or, um, you know, Cisco and Kira go back to the Bell Riots, which are supposed to take place a few years into the future. And so they could go back and kind of be in a more familiar, earthy time and place. But it wasn't necessarily, oh, this is supposed to happen last yeah. week. I was also imagining, too, that the people of the 60s, you know, having this futuristic tale, then come back to their own time must have been, like, the biggest hoot ever. You know, they must have loved every minute of it. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's part of the fun of when they go save the yes. whales, right? The, the traffic and the kid with the boombox yep. and the swearing and the all that stuff. Uh, 
asking instructions for the police officer in Russian. Where are the, the nuclear, nuclear vessels? vessels. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so lots of you know fun there. Uh, Cashman wrote this about this script, which I liked. He says, uh, with this story, Kuhn's presence is clear, uh, supporting Fontana's inclination to add humor to the series uh, that just a short while before was being played completely straight. Plus, with Fontana writing and Kuhn polishing, it was now uh, the comedy relief was roasted to perfection. I love that. This is also Star Trek's first semi-comical episode. Well, if you don't count mud. True. True, true. Uh, director Michael O'Hurley uh, was new to the series. He was uh, 47 years old and was cutting his teeth as a director for Warner Brothers. Uh, he was doing their series like Maverick and 77 Sunset Strip. And uh, Roddenberry knew him from The Lieutenant, as uh, he was prone to do, and uh, called him in to do uh, this episode. Roger Perry then was brought in as Captain John Christopher. He was then a uh, prominent TV guest star. He was showing up at all the shows back in the day. He said about auditioning for this show that it had never happened to me this way before or since, but I went into Desilu and there was nobody in the office except for the secretary, and she said, you can go right on in. So I just walked in, and there was Michael O'Hurley sitting alone in the room behind the desk. We talked for maybe five minutes, and he just said, okay, you'll do. <laughs> that was it. He got the job. You'll do. You'll do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, if you're like, well, you want to be an extra, right? Right. And you, you'll be security man number two who stands by the door. You know, you don't talk. You don't even, like, make an expression. It's just that security would be at the door. Yeah, yeah. So you want a guy who guy could look like he's big and tough and maybe has a military bearing. Yeah, you'll do. <laughs> yep. But <laughs> the guy who, like, is kind of the anchor of the... The whole episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you'll do. <laughs> I know, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, and speaking of one of those guys, John Winston made his first of 11 appearances as Transporter Chief Kyle. You know, he got called in for this one job, right? He had a couple lines. He's the guy who gives, you know, the, the guard from down below the, the chicken soup. So it's funny because, uh, and the cashman says this, which I like. He says, he brought more to this role that he gives himself credit for. Others recognized his contribution, and he would return often as this character. It's pretty funny. Uh, Perry said he knew Shatner from doing another show with him, and that he had uh, just seen uh, Leonard Nimoy in his uh, like independent film. And so uh, he said of Leonard, I was constantly amazed on how easy it was for him to say all these highly technical, complicated lines. We hear that a lot, I think, from... Uh, we do. And people who get good at it, I think one of the reasons that Jordy ended up in engineering is that he was good with the techno babble. Yeah. So Michael Hurley, he uh, finished on schedule and on bu budget. Uh, everyone, cast, crew, and network uh, were thrilled by the revolt by the results. This is you know one of those classic episodes that a lot of people have on their lists. O'Hurley he was asked to come back again, but he turned it down because he wanted to do this Disney western called Smith. <laughs> That's what it is. It's called Smith with an exclamation point. <laughs> those Disney people. Yeah. He says, uh, Star Trek in those days was just another show. It was a six-day show with fellows in funny pajamas. I thought Smith would be the better career. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Who lets actors control their own careers? Right? Exactly. Well, no, this is the director. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> talent. Yeah. Even still, yeah. Uh, not to mention, especially since you've never heard of it, Smith Bond. Not surprisingly, so. Well, you know. I mean, with that name. It, it may have done reasonably well in terms of, you know, the Saturday matinee. Does it, you know, does it bring in more ticket sales than it it did to cost, you know, to make yet another western right. in the '60s, where it was like a. We got John Wayne's hat from the last movie. No one's wearing it right now. You want to put it on? Okay, great. Uh, all right. Well, that's all I got for the moment. I'm behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> anything you want to? Uh, I'm just anything you want to talk I'm about? Just glad we're not doing a Smith <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> so. This episode is a time travel episode, and yet the time travel, in a lot of ways, is just hand-waved. This is really about bringing our futuristic cast into the present and have them run around. Uh-huh. And the out of all the things you could have hooked on to in the 60s, the Cold War, you know, stopping Armageddon or, you know, some kind of nuclear exchange or World War Three or whatever it is. Um, maybe it'd probably be too hot to try to do a civil rights episode, but instead they went with the UFO as <laughs> their 1960s hook. <laughs> I know, right? It's crazy, and it's funny too because if you think they didn't do, I mean, obviously they end up doing it all in in Star Trek Four, but you know they don't do any of that. Like, look at the weird clothes these you know these guys are wearing. It's like it's all in this just military set you know and it's like totally uninteresting or you know not really not really hitting on what's going on in the 60s no, they they missed so much of it yeah I mean, aside from the fact that the military characters were very stock characters and a lot of movies with them uh it just seems like they didn't even have to be in the 60s well you know we hit many episodes back where we were talking about how a lot of these guys you know, we're from the war, right, yeah. you know, how like, you know, so a lot of these sets, a lot of how things worked, you know, all of that. I'm sure they were all like super ended in the detail. Yeah, you could. So there's a moment where they all where Sulu and Kirk are looking at the bulletin board and going, eh, check it out. Yeah. And you, hey, I a, imagine it's a bulletin everybody, board with everybody on the cast could have been like, there's no way an Air Force base would have had this here. It's got to go here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Duty exactly. roster wouldn't be here. Be over here. Uh, all right, I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. We got uh, some uh, the pre-credit sequence going on here. Not a lot happens. We got some stock footage of a of a jet fighter. Uh, we are in a room. <laughs> where they have a radar going on, and it's just one guy and one guy at a desk sitting there looking at the radar. I don't know exactly how... Uh, that probably wasn't super accurate. I'm sure there'd be a, I don't a know. bank of them, maybe. You get the exact same scene in Pearl Harbor where they're seeing, seeing the Japanese planes come in, and it's one guy who's looking at, at a scope and another guy who's doing paperwork, 
And he's like, I don't know, there's a big haze on the on the screen. I don't know. And the guy pulls down a clipboard, looks at it, and goes, uh, flight of beef, you know, 17s are supposed to be flying in from the mainland. Okay. Yeah. And they just go back to business. And that's because there's a historical episode where the radar system did detect the planes, but mistook them from for a scheduled other group of planes. Yeah. And it was a guy in a room and a guy doing paperwork, exactly what we see here. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I was I was chucking that all up to budgetry, you know. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes I look at these through the Drink. wrong eye. <laughs> yeah, it could have been the same way at Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. We're spending a million dollars on the special effects. Let's not spend a million dollars on this room, guys. All right, let's go. <laughs> so you know, we find out we're on 1960s Earth, and they have found a real UFO. We haven't even seen any of the cast members that we normally see, and then suddenly. We see it's the Enterprise in the Earth's atmosphere. And boy, that ship's a rockin', isn't it? <laughs> it's like tumbling back and forth, like rockin'. It's funny. Okay. Credits, opening titles. We come back from the titles and we hear Captain's Lugs, Dead Eights 3113.2. So apparently we find out they're on a uh, routine flight back to Earth uh, when a black star. Pulls them into its gravity like a rubber band. I think they mean a black hole. Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, I went looking up this uh, black sun thing. And uh, besides it being a gangster organization in Star Wars, (laughs) the the only reference on Memory Alpha to this is actually in this, uh, is is in regards to this episode. And not only that, at the bottom they say, say, uh, see also black hole. So I assume that this was just another one of those, like, 1960s, we got the science wrong thing. So, yeah, I mean, we'd have to, like, talk to somebody who was doing this kind of physics in the 60s to go, would this have been a plausible alternate term that just got dropped in favor of black hole? Or or did they just totally screw this one up? So uh, we find the, uh, the bridge of the Enterprise. The lights are out. There's just one big light coming in from the, uh, from the view screen, which is sunny. Spock says that the secondary systems are up and running. Yeah, yeah, but what about the auxiliary, asks, asks Kirk. Spock says, well, if Mr. Spock, uh, Mr. Spock, if Mr. Scott is still with us, then they should be up and running any second now. Systems come back to life. Apparently, Mr. Sp- Mr. Scott is with us. The Miracle Worker, <laughs> right? The Miracle Worker, earning his name. That's right. Uh, they know they are, they are on Earth, but Uhura can't find the uh, Starfleet Channel, but does suddenly find the local 5 o'clock news talking about the first manned mission to the moon. <laughs> Spock quickly surmises that they must be in the 1960s and that the slingshot effect appears to have sent them back in time. He comes up with that idea pretty quickly. <laughs> No, this isn't just a random communication we accidentally heard that was just floating around out in space. No, we know that we've gone back in time. Uh, so suddenly they get the reading of an approaching ship. Oh no, it's a jet, a jet fighter. And it tries to keep speed with the ship, but the Enterprise keeps climbing its way out of orbit. A scan of the jet tells Spock that it could be armed with missiles or possibly nuclear ones. Dun, dun, dun. I, I wonder about this. <laughs> I was wondering about this too. So, we did keep. So, part of the triad, our nuclear defense triad, was to have 
bombers in the air with nuclear bombs on them in case they needed to fly to Russia and, and retaliate because, of course, we wouldn't do the first strike. But what they're suggesting here is that this fighter would have nuclear... It's the, First of all, they describe it as an interceptor. So it's an interceptor with nuclear, what, anti-aircraft missiles on it? That doesn't make any sense. I don't think it would have made sense to anyone watching the show. That's almost like, you know, you bump into a fishing net, and it, you know, it's like, well, wait, this fishing vessel could have, uh, you know, nuclear-armed fishing nets to it. You're like, what? Well, and as we've stated, all those people, you know, in the audience who used to be in the Army or in the Korean War yeah. or World War II, either way... You know, that was probably, they probably, you know, totally understood that that was like, no, that's, this isn't the way it would have gone down. There probably wouldn't be nuclear, nuclear uh, missiles on this ship. Not on an interceptor. You know, we could chalk it up to our under, the 23rd century's understanding of the 1960s is flawed. That, you know, basically Spock's getting... Uh, hmm, planes of the mid-20th century. Ooh, some of them carry nuclear missiles. Yeah. Uh, I better tell the captain right away. You know, and he tells him this rather than going, oh, let's see, the bomber, bomber, bomber. Yeah. No interceptors. Okay, I think we're clear. Yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> so they attempt to bring the ship, the ship in, or the jet in with a tractor beam, uh, but the jet begins to break up, so they have to beam the pilot aboard. On board, the pilot is very distrusting of Kirk. He's amazed that they even speak English. But as soon as Kirk begins to talk about the tractor beam, the pilot tells him, quit that double tuck. Kirk assures him that the pilot, uh, assures the pilot that he is a guest and asks him to follow him. So uh, we have a interesting 1960s politics, uh, sexual politics thing that happens here because uh, a woman walks by. And the pilot sort of stares after her in her miniskirt. She's a colonel, says Kirk, proving what a different time we're in now. It's wacky. And there's a wacky saxophone that happens there. It does this little wail, like, you know, you know, one of those, like, sexy cartoon right. female things. Crazy swinging 60s. On the turbo lift, Kirk says that there are uh, 12 more like the ship on the fleet. That seems like a lot for the uh, Constitution, huh? 12 of them? So, it turns out there is the uh, Air 2 Genie, a nuclear air-to-air -air missile which was designed to shoot down, like, a fleet of Soviet strategic bombers. You know, so that uh, you wouldn't have to worry about accuracy. You're shooting each one down. You could just blow up the whole thing. Yeah. So it is theoretically plausible that an interceptor could be carrying a nuclear air-to-air -air missile. but Unlikely flying over Nebraska. Yeah. So we find out there are 12 other, uh, or there are 12 more like the, con or 12 more Constitution-class ships. In the fleet? Right. I don't know. Does that seem like too many? It seems like the Constitution's supposed to be like the new cool ship. It seems right. you got to remember that space is really big. Well, that's true. And not only that, but the, the Enterprise to... has been around for a while. I keep forgetting. Right. It's not like it's fresh so off we, the line. So we meet, 
yeah, we meet several other Constitution class ships, and so I, I mean at any given point. So we meet the Intrepid. Uh, I think let's see. I don't remember them all. And then there are other ones that just get named. Well, you know, it's a good, cheap special effects move. You know, just reuse the Enterprise as another ship. That's exactly right, yeah. Uh, some more funny stuff happens here as our pilot walks onto the bridge and says, I never did believe in little green men. And then we see the green-blooded Vulcan approach him and say, <laughs> neither did I. What's funny is that we've seen in other episodes where Spock's pallor looks a little more green and pale than it does in this episode. He looks less so like that in this one. Spock then suggests that the pilot not be allowed to go yeah. back down to the planet. He says, I'm not saying this about Christopher, but an unscrupulous man could use this information about the future to wreak havoc and change the future. Kirk sends uh, Christopher... Yeah, so... Go ahead. This is the Back to the Future plot line, right? Right. That, uh, you know, our, our Air Force captain is going to go back and he's going to steal a list of, uh, you know, World Series <laughs> data tapes right. from the Enterprise and make some bets and uh, turn the whole world into whatever it turns into. Yeah. His I own Las Vegas. Yeah. I mean, so they go back and they try to destroy any evidence of the Enterprise. Right. And I could just imagine somewhere from, like, say, the Archer era, and they discover in these archives these data tapes. You're looking at them going, wow, look at this. It's amazing design. You know, we've got guys working on something like this, but this looks so advanced. You know, let's study it, and what else do we know about it? And and you know, then trying to imitate the future because, well, we know what the future looks like. They've been here. Yeah. In fact, uh, look at these uniforms. Oh, screw these blue uniforms. Let's wear these. <laughs> They're so much more colorful. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine that kind of uh, cargo cult adherence to the future, right? Well, if we build a ship that looks like the Constitution class, it must be as powerful as the Constitution class. Instead of saying... Yeah, fine, the future visit us. We're going to ignore those ships and build the best ships we can today. Yeah. And then if they happen to look like that, then great. Because in the future, they'll be that much better. You know, but if, if you try to build what you see in this fuzzy Air Force photo from 1966 or whatever, you're going to be like, wow, did we build the best ship we really could have? Or did we just build the ship the way we thought it was supposed to look? Exactly. So uh, Kirk sends Christopher to go get changed and then to uh, meet him in his quarters. In his quarters, Kirk tries to do a uh, supplemental log entry, but the computer uh, calls him dear. Kirk asks the computer uh, not to talk to me like, don't speak to me that way. Compute, says the computer. Dear. <laughs> we, find out in a, we find out from Spock that uh, apparently they went to upgrade the computer at Signet 6. And the ladies of Signet decided it didn't have enough personality and decided to upgrade yes. it. And Spock it, it isn't going to be able to fix it without help from this the This is one of those crazy, you know, like 1960s idea of women creeping into the 23rd century, right? 
<laughs> yes. You know, these are not even... I mean, you could find women in the 60s who weren't like this. They were working at NASA, right? Yeah. You could have gone there exactly. and gone, uh, so let's get six of them in a room, and if you designed, you know, a starship, what would it be like? And and then you suddenly have those elements in it. The thing is, it might not be at all interesting. You'd be like, oh, look, the... You know, women had the whatever more conveniently located, you know, the coffee machine or the, I don't know, the <laughs> exactly. elevators or better position. You know, who knows what changes would be made, right? But they would be trivial and they would yeah. be like, I don't know. As opposed to this, which is like, we're going to make it so over the top stereotypical. Uh, and awful, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. So I was trying to figure out, from Christopher, Captain Christopher's perspective, does this faulty computer help sell, or does it hindle their time travel story? Is he more apt to believe them, I wonder? I don't know. It's a weird thing that they throw in, and for a while, they keep doing it. And, of course, one of the things that they've actually accomplished, and this may be the true goal, is Majel Barrett is now the voice of the computer. Right. Which may have been the goal the whole time. So also in this scene, Kirk's hair looks a little lighter. I don't know if you noticed that. But it's like, because it's dark still on the sides, but on the top it's almost like a reddish blondish color. I mean, it might be the lighting at this point, but it looks like he joined a 90s boy band is what it looks like. (laughs) Well, maybe it was all those on-location shots they were doing. Oh, yeah, yeah, from the the last two weeks. Exactly. (laughs) His hair lightened up uh, being in the sun all those days. That's right. Possibly. Also, just in general, the lighting in this episode's a lot of fun. Uh, it, 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 it's the same lighting guy, but it just looks like he was having a lot. I guess maybe because the episode's a little more lighthearted. But, you know, he's got, like, heavier greens going in some backgrounds, so, you know, reds, and he's playing with gels and stuff. Uh, I think overall the lighting in this episode is really fun. I like the uh, – so they do the dramatic uh, face lighting. Uh-huh. Where they're talking to the the Air Force captain, and he's got the eyes lit up. Yep. And Kirk is lit up like totally from the left or or the right. It's, you know, it's like half of his face is well lit, and the other half is in shadow. Yeah. And the other guy's got the band of light. <laughs> and of course, they're doing it for dramatic effect. If you don't think about lighting, it's not a problem. But the minute you're thinking about lighting, you're like, what kind of light is there that that guy gets that lighting and this guy gets this lighting? <laughs> Right, exactly. Are there other lights out? What is happening here? (laughs) So uh, they tell Christopher that uh, he can't go back to Earth. And uh, Spock also tells him that he's researched him and and tells him that he makes no significant uh, trace on the future. Ouch, that's going to hurt a little bit. I don't know. I mean, if if you got picked up by alien Star Trek people from the future and they said... Sorry, Matt. You don't make a, you know, earth-changing contribution. Be like, you're right. I don't. So uh, bring me to the 23rd century, please. Yeah, let's go. Let's see what the future's <laughs> like. Which again, they do do in episode or in Star Trek Four. They take her with. Uh, but he's pissed because he's like, "Hey, I got a wife and two kids." I thought that was very 50s of him. You know, the wife and two kids. Good job. Middle America. And a dog. Yeah, exactly. And a dog. And a mailman. Uh, but Kirk Wait won't... a minute. <laughs> exactly. But Kirk won't... Damn, man. I've been back home in years. <laughs> man, I, I really need to get back home. <laughs> oh, 
maybe he doesn't. Maybe the mailman's son is the one who goes to Saturn. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Leads the Jupiter probe. Possible. <laughs> uh, but Kirk still won't let him leave or report his information back. Christopher makes it very clear. I'm supposed to report back any information that I have. Scott calls up and tells them uh, in about four hours they'll be good to go. But Kirk says, but go where? There's nowhere we can go. In this time period, there's nothing happening. Vulcan. Well, that's true. They could go to Vulcan. They could go that's to Vulcan. True. I mean, that would, that would be my backup plan if I got stranded in the past. Go to Vulcan. They've been in, in warp technology for a very long time. Of course, they could still be part Romulan then at that point. Who knows? 300 years. Well, not quite. They separated oh, like 3,000 years before. It's a long... One of the things that happens is that humans have this reputation for basically going from Stone Age to space travel... Uh-huh. Almost overnight. The Ferengi mention it in Little Green Men. They're like, humans were this backward? You know, just 400 years ago? Oh, my God. You know, how did they, you know, go yeah. from this to what we know? The, the people who make the root beer and they're fuzzy and happy and, uh, you know, cloying. <laughs> so good. <laughs> overnight. Because he's like, it took, you know, the Ferengi 6,000 years to go from... The, the dawn of space travel, you know, sending satellites into orbit to warp travel. And the, the wow, Vulcans really have, that long? Yeah. And the, the Vulcans have also have a long... I mean, the, the separation from the Romulans happens a long time ago. So without going back and, like, checking the timeline, I don't know exactly how long it is, but it's a while. It wasn't stuff that happened last week. So because of all of this, Christ- uh, Captain Christopher, almost half-smiling, says, Well, looks like I can't leave, and neither can you. Dun-dun-dun. Commercial. And my note says, that's how you go to commercial. <laughs> you point out the quandary of the, you know, the crux of the episode, and then you go to commercial and let people think about it. They're stewing about it while they're watching the girls. Boy, they are stuck, aren't they? Well, they're getting that cup of coffee. Exactly. We come back for a commercial. Captain's log is now 3113.7. You know, it, it, it occurs to me there is a firm data point. There's the episode Carbon Creek, where uh, T'Pol's grandmother comes back and visits in 1950s uh, Pennsylvania. And so, obviously, they had warp ships that were looking at Earth in the 1950s. So if you were trapped in the 1960s, you could totally in a constitution class starship just like go to Vulcan. Please help us. Yeah, and they'd be like, okay, well, we got to decontaminate your, you know, your future stuff. We got to hide your ship and whatever. Cause... But otherwise, we'll settle you on this barren moon Good luck. here. Bye. Yeah, but, I mean, it's no, not like no. they would abandon you, but, but they would not like... They wouldn't be like, "Oh no, we've our society's totally contaminated by knowing that like they're humans in the future and that they know who we are." Yeah. Although the Vulcans I think would be pretty cool about handling it. It would be like crazy earth yeah. people. Yeah, for one thing they'd be like, "Well, don't tell us anything, you know, we're not going to ask any questions, yeah. but yeah, we'll help you, you know, go someplace where you can live." Uh, so Kirk has some more problems with the computer as now the computer is pouting as he continues to yell at it. Spock has uh, <laughs> Spock has some more info on Captain Christopher, but as uh, Kirk tries to find him, he's not in his room. So Kirk calls security. 
He says, hey, be on the lookout for Captain Christopher. I'm going to meet you in the transporter room. So then we see Captain Christopher in the hallway, and he sees a security guy coming. And all of a sudden, he just punches him in the gut at the same time, knocking him out, I said. I didn't understand what happened here. He just punches him in the stomach, and the guy like falls on the floor like he's been knocked on the head. I'm like, okay. Wasn't, shouldn't that guy have been better paying attention yes, to like you know rounding every corner? I think so. You've got security guards, and they're on alert. You know, you, you kind of feel like they ought to be able yeah. to catch an escape pilot. Or at least not get so, you yeah. know, he's got to do something clever. As opposed to he just punches him in the stomach. Yep. And they're out cold. Anyway, he grabs the guard's phaser. But this is what... This is one of those things that, like, from a dramatic timeline point of view, you don't want to spend, like, two or three minutes on on how he gets past the guard. Yeah, yeah, You've yeah, got, like, exactly. a story to tell. You do have stuff from, like, James Bond where they would show that stuff, and it would pay off because of, of how yeah. cool it was. So if you had a cool way for him to trick the guard, then it would be like, ooh, he outsmarted him. He did this thing. It took three minutes, but it was worth it because we see how clever the pilot was. Otherwise, he punches him. In the stomach, knocking him out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People are often knocked out when you punch him in the stomach. Exactly. Wait a minute. So anyway, he grabs the phaser and uh, <laughs> he heads into the transporter room. He attempts to hold the chief up, you know, make him send him back to Earth. But Kirk shows up at the last minute, knocks the phaser out of his hand, and then knocks him out. Clocks him in the jaw. In the transporter room. Another way you exactly. can knock people out. Uh <laughs> in the transporter room, we uh, uh, they talk again why they can't send him back, nor can uh, the uh, nor can the crew be allowed to visit Earth. Four hundred and thirty chances to alter the future, says Bones. Spock shows up and uh, says that they they uh, he was wrong and that they must return Christopher to Earth after all. His son will head the first successful Saturn probe. Scene ends with Captain Christopher happy he's going to have that son. In the next scene, it's a boardroom scene. Uh, they discuss how cr- to get Christopher back home and how to cover up the pictures and logs that Christopher had taken in the jet. They'd crushed the jet with the tractor beam, and it can't be explained away. There's video of it. Or at least pictures, I guess, probably. The moral dilemmas of time travel and the prime directive, right? Coming together right here. We can't change our. We can't risk sending anyone down to Earth because it could change the future as they know it. I actually have a reference here to Back to the Future, but you already made it for me, so poo on you. <laughs> but it is. It's a, it's a fine example of what happens when you you know you change someone's future, even in the even in the first movie without even going into the whole Biff thing. You know, just punching Biff out. You know, changes. You know, his father's attitude. Who Biff is? Blah blah blah. Yeah, who Biff is yeah. and his father. But it doesn't change who Marty is, nor any expectations they have of him, nor the house that they live in, nor... Okay, whatever. I'm sorry. So, (laughs) So Kirk decides that they must beam down and collect all the information that the captain reported in. So they they beam down. So I was wondering about this. Like, I know this isn't the TARDIS with stocks, you know, of clothes from any era that you might need it. But, you know, they could have replicated some, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, it it seems like they should have been able to just... Put them in Starfleet uniforms, or yes. I mean, uh, Air Force uniforms. Exactly. 
Or they could have borrowed, you know, Captain Christopher's. Anyway, so uh, meanwhile, Spock and Bones are waiting in the transporter room. Bones says to him, uh, shouldn't you be working on your time warp calculations? Spock replies, I am. <laughs> I love that. It was so good. And I knew he was going to say that, too. It was so great. Uh, suddenly, a guard catches uh, Sulu and Kirk. He takes their belts and their bags. Bones decides, it's been too long. We should try to call them on the communicator. Then the guard opens up the communicator while also accidentally setting off the emergency signal. Spock hears the signal and beams them aboard. But he doesn't beam Kirk and Sulu. He beams the guard aboard. And then it's funny because we get this funny, like, point of view shot from the guard's perspective as, the, as Spock is walking up just to, like, pan up. There's, you know, Spock, ears and all, coming at uh, the guard. Yep. This time, when we go to commercial, we end on a funny note as opposed to uh, the serious, you know, quandary. Back at it. Stardate 3113.9. It's only been like eight hours since they, uh, they arrived here. We get a first officer's log reminding us what's happened before the commercial. Because, you know, those commercial breaks are so long. Spock assures, the, <laughs> Spock assures the captain that the guard won't be, uh, won't see any more of the ship than the transporter room. Scared, the guard stands there, unmoving as Bones takes away his gun and communicator. <laughs> this is the shot I was thinking about when I mentioned it on last week's episode. On Earth, lucky for Sulu and Kirk, they, uh, the photo guys have just left the dark room, so uh, they sneak in. But unlucky for Sulu and Kirk, there's an alarm on that door. For some reason, we don't know. The guards rush in. Kirk leaves Sulu in the other room and attacks them all. But even for the great Captain Kirk, three armed guards is no match for poor Kirk. But boy, is it close. He almost does it. Uh, he gets to use some of the, like, the, uh, he's using Kirk Fu. Yes, exactly. Throwing so he's got himself, the... Superman yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> Just like sideways right into people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's got the two-handed, you know. The karate chop. A lot of Kirk Fu. Sulu gets back up to the ship. We then find Spock, Sulu, and Bones, like, looking through the material that they found. Bones is angry and slams his hand on the table and says, Blast your theories and your observations, Spock. What about the captain? <laughs> I like that line, too. <laughs> We go back we go back to the planet. Kirk is being interrogated, I think, or so. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, the commander picks up the communicator. But I wondered, is that the communicator, or is that like one of those like teeny hand phasers? Like I think little... it's a teeny hand phaser. Yeah, it sure seems so, because Kirk warns him to be careful with it. <laughs> uh, this is a fun little scene I enjoy. Uh, Shatner is like full tongue-in-cheek mode in this, uh, in this scene. It's a lot of fun. I'm going to lock you up for 200 years. Yeah, that should, that should be about right. Should be about right. <laughs> Back on the Enterprise, uh, Spock asks Christopher for the coordinates to the interrogation rooms, but Christopher says that he won't uh, he won't give them up unless he's allowed to go too. So Sulu, Spock, and Captain Christopher beam down to the planet. Meanwhile, the guard gets some soup. <laughs> <laughs> on the planet, they free Kirk, but then. Christopher refuses to go. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial. 
back from commercial. We find uh, Christopher has got Sulu and Kirk at gunpoint. Luckily, Spock had snuck into the, the captain's office. Christopher yells for him. Hey, Spock, get out here. Kirk tries to talk him down, but Chris's, Chris's stance is, you know, he wants to go home. And it's his job to report everything that he's seen. Spock then sneaks up behind Captain Chris and gives him the old Vulcan nerve pinch. The Vulcan hello. The Vulcan hello. <laughs> or goodbye, I guess. The Vulcan, that's yeah. the Vulcan goodbye. Or good night. <laughs> <laughs> the Vulcan good night, good. Back on board, they toss around theories for getting home. Uh, we hear that uh, Scott and Spock have worked together to figure out a thing. It's kind of fun because it seems like since the uh, Galileo 7 episode that we, we get a lot of Spock and Scott working together on things, yep. you know? It's fun. Even at the beginning of this one, you know, like how Spock is so encouraging of like, you know, well, if Mr. Spock is doing as good a job as he normally does, you know, and then boom, there he is. So uh, they decide they're actually going to uh, figure out a way to return Christopher, who is now free to roam about the ship again without cuffs or a guard. Yeah. Well, or force fields or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever. Tracking his location. They say that if they get them back to the right point in time, that they won't remember anything that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly sure how that science works, folks. Don't know what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, but the crew is going to be fine, despite going back in time as well, you know? They won't forget while they're, uh, hopefully they won't forget while they're hurting the here? sun. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are we going to the sun again? I forget what we're doing. <laughs> But Scott also warns them that uh, this could all go wrong. We could accidentally overshoot their time. It's the breaking he's worried about. Although out of all possible things, you know, showing up like, uh, what is it, the Bozeman? That's uh, Kelsey Grammer ship that shows up. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like 80 years. You know, showing up like, you know, 25 years too late, but you're like in happy Star Trek world, and it's like, oh, uh, everyone's got Excelsiors. We're in an unrefit constitution. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we must kill you now. It's more like, well, we'd put you to work. We'd find something for you to do. Uh, you can run the museums. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Make the Enterprise Museum ship for kids. <laughs> so uh, I also highly recommend going on YouTube and finding uh, one of the comparison videos of the original effects compared to the new super effects. You can guess that them going around the sun was not in the original uh, uh, version of it, in the 60s version of it. So the storytelling in the visual effects, in the new and the new visual effects, are just helps, you know, because even though you sort of have this idea like, oh, we're going to spin ourselves around the sun, you know, back in the back in the 60s, you just had these normal shots of. In space, the Enterprise, you know, either flying really fast or flying away from the camera. You don't really get an idea of what they're doing. So just from a storytelling standpoint, that the new effects are, are, are way cool. So uh, that's what they decide to do. They're going to sling themselves, slingshot themselves around our sun. But apparently, according to Scott, we're not going to get close enough that we're not going to that we're going to burn up or anything. Well, that's not going to happen. Don't be crazy. As they start heading towards the sun. You can see the 
chronometers on board are going backwards. What is happening? This is a mess. Anyway. And yet, like, the talking goes forwards. Yeah, 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 exactly. So they spin themselves around the sun, and they start heading backwards in time for a couple of minutes for some reason. As yeah, they, they can fly talk towards... about it, yeah. What's that? They, they can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like, here's where we leave off, you know, the captain. Yes, Captain here's Christopher. Where we put the, here's where we put the guard back. Yeah. So not only do they have to find the exact moment when they took Christopher, but they also have to transport him into a moving jet. So uh, I think the map Well, presumably still doing their around-the-sun slingshot. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, because they're, they're zooming their way back to Earth. That's part of the craziness of the Saul. It's not like in Star Trek Four, where just going around is going to make them go back in time. No, no, no. Actually zooming back to Earth to drop off Captain Christopher, then the guard. Oh, because they're now going forward in time. That's what's happening. So after they slingshot on the sun, they're then moving forward in time because they've been going backward in time. Now they're going forward in time to uh, put Christopher back into place, to put the guard back into his place, then zoom past the Earth at like warp 8, warp 9, warp 10, warp a million to go forward in time. That's basically how it works in this episode. So uh, it's a little bit crazy. It's all a mess. Anyway, I was also thinking that what would happen if they like, you know, miscalculated and then poor Christopher is like hanging in the air. He's missed the uh, the fighter jet and he's just like suspended in midair like Wiley e. Coyote or something. <laughs> So Spock is counting us down, and then they pull the brakes. Scotty yells that the engines are buckling, which is weird for a matter-antimatter containment unit and engine to do, but that's what happens. And uh, then they are there, and the show wraps up rather quickly with Kirk calling them home. And we go to credits. There you go. Time travel is all a little bit uh, wacky and questionable, that's what I say, yep. at best. But uh, but you know it's still a fun episode. Well, it's certainly a fun episode. The the science yes. I think is is theoretically you know fine in in the sense that you know immense you know gravities and high speeds and whatever. But the way it kind of plays out, you're like don't don't look behind the curtain. Yeah 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 yeah. No let's let's not get too deep into you know, that for, science for, there. Yeah. And I think part of it comes down to we need to do this quickly. We don't want to spend 20 minutes, you know, doing this the proper way. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's not worth it in terms of the dramatic. At, at that point, you'd rather just, like, have it done and, and characters talking about yes, it. Yes, exactly. If you wanted to get the science right. Even if for some reason the people they the sent dis- back to Earth forget everything that they had just seen. Even if that happens. Okay, let's yeah, well, I mean, that. the other thing they could have done is they... <laughs> You know, the they could have, like, for example, you know, in that case, if you don't want to go with the forgetting, you could have had uh, McCoy slip uh, the captain a Mickey. Right. So that everything he says is even weirder. Right? Yeah. And they're just like, yeah, he's crazy. Or just <laughs> do what they, you know, there wasn't, haven't we already had an episode where they alter somebody's brain to forget something? Sure. I mean, we've done that already, I think, too. So it's just, I don't know, whatever. It's fine. Uh, it's a fun episode. I'm just so we'll going to just... borrow these n Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
so the good news is, like I said, the director brought every, everything in on time and on budget, so that's great. At, uh, at $178,629, this was one of the upper ones, and uh, this actually lowered this first season deficit only down to 39000 So they're not doing so bad anymore. You know, they keep having these ups and downs, blah, blah, blah. And then I found this quote, which I really like. Uh, DeForest Kelly said of this episode, he said, I hardly had anything to do in it. I was very light in it, but I still think it's one of the best episodes. So I think it's funny that he's able to like, eh, it's not even one of my episodes, but uh, I still dig it. I still think it's a great, uh, great fun. Well, he had, you know, a couple of really good lines. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, that's it. That's all I got for this week, sir. Anything uh, that we didn't hit in the big uh, review? So, you know, in some senses, this is just a fun, light episode, yes. right? They go back to the audience's timeline and, you know, run around in 1960s Air Force Base. Uh, there's not... Which, you know, sorry, side note. You know, which is the part uh, of the reason that they should have put them in, like, just to have a little more fun with it. They could have put him in, like, jeans and a shirt or something. You know what I mean? Just to have, yeah, like, sure. why not? You know, just to expose the fun a little bit more. Yeah, and, and, of course, you could also have the, in the sense that, like, they're getting the time a little bit wrong or a little bit confused. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're appropriate, but not perfectly appropriate. Yeah. It's like, put them in, like, in, like, 50s greaser outfits. gear or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or have them dressed like they're going to like a uh, in a baseball game, or <laughs> you know. Yes. Well, Captain, why am I carrying a large foam finger? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Spock holding the finger—that would be the best. Captain, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, historian said you're supposed to wave it when you see members of the other team. What team? I'm not sure. Just, you know, improvise. Yes, Captain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it doesn't have, you know, a lot of the stuff we'd consider essential to Star Trek. It doesn't have, you know, a series of competing goods. It doesn't have, you know, these great moral dilemmas. It doesn't have a lot of this other stuff. It just has this kind of contrived time travel thing that they really pull out of a hat because what they really want to do is put the Enterprise back in the 60s. Yep. Well, all of that fu- all of that aside, everything I've been saying aside, like I really like this episode. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a fun episode. Yeah, it's a good time. So, uh, uh, I forgot what episode's next. Oh, Return of the Archons is next. So, for Return of the Archons, it is time to continue playing our new game. I think we should have a new game. Okay. Uh, spot Lieutenant Leslie. <laughs> oh, he's in this one? <laughs> yes, he is. All right. Great. I can't wait. Spot Lieutenant Leslie. It's going to be a good time. Awesome. All right. Well, there you go. Next week, Return of the Archons. Everybody come back for that one. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Soon we'll be full-time on the YouTube, so check us out there. We have an Instagram account, which is always full of funny, dumb things that I post, so make sure you come out for that. As always, I'm Matt from Austin saying goodbye, and Ken from Houston saying goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. That's it, and we will see you all next week. (laughs) 